Welcome to the show, three-time winning Super Bowl, winning NFL executive, and now two-time author. You can also find him on the GM Shuffle podcast, Michael Lombardi, joining us on the show. Michael, appreciate you joining us, man. That's good to be here, David. Good to see you again. Hope all is well. Everything's awesome, man. Just like we talked a little bit off air. Again, I know I've been trying to get you on. You've been a busy man. And I appreciate you taking some time to get into us. But for obviously the listeners who I feel like a lot of people who listen to the show are familiar with you. But for some of the listeners that are not, just tell about a little bit about yourself, how you got started in football. Obviously, a lot of the guys you've worked for. Just get us a little started. You get us started on that before we really get going. Yeah, I mean, I started, I was fortunate enough to get a, my first job. And it was an unpaid assistant at UNLV, worked in the recruiting department, kind of like you did. Got a job working at the 49ers in the scouting department as Bill Walsh's gopher. So I spent four years with Coach Walsh. Then I went to Cleveland, kind of worked my way up the ladder. Got Belichick came in 91. Uh, then, you know, then I went to work for the Raiders. And then I returned to work back with Belichick at the Patriots to kind of end my career and from that experience, working for Al Davis, Bill Belichick, Bill Walsh, I wrote the book Gridiron Genius. And then just recently, I finished a book called Football Done Right, which is about basically it's the top 100 players of all time in the NFL. I write them up, talk about the coaches in the league, talk about trades, all those things. Kind of it's a, really a book of all about pro football. So it's been good. You know, I've had 35 years in the league. I've been to uh, four Super Bowls, one three. So it's been good. Now I'm enjoying this part of it, which, you know, I, I also I write the daily coach along with other yep. staff. I'm involved with that, with Coach George Raveling. So it's been good giving back to to the sport that I love. Awesome. So now just thoughts on just general just direction of the scouting now compared to obviously it's a, it's different call spade to spade from when you got started. But now where do you see kind of the direction of things we've seen change throughout the years to some things you see coming up on the horizon from an evaluation factor in analytics, stuff like that. What do you, what's, what's kind of your vision of that? You think we're talking here in about five, 10 years. I think still the hardest thing to evaluate is character, right? When I first started in 1984, Bill Walsh was, we were playing in Houston and Bill Walsh was watching a game on his TV set up in his room the night before the game. And he called me up in his room and he said, Michael, who's this kid here? And I said, oh, that's the Mississippi Valley was playing Texas Southern at the old Astrodome. And he said, get me every tape you can on Jerry Rice, which wasn't an easy chore, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to call the school and waited a long time to get the tape. And so that's all we had. You know, you had three game tapes on Jerry Rice, right? That's all we had today. You can sit in your office in Oxford, Mississippi. I can sit in mine in Ocean City, New Jersey, and we can watch te every Texas a and game ever played. Yep. So the ability to evaluate talent is a lot easier in terms of access to the video. What's become more challenging is the access to the player, the character of the player. Who is the player? What does he stand for? And as the generations have changed and they we've gone from a – we to a me, you know, a lot of selfies and yep. social media, that character evaluation, whether it be from high school kids to college kids to pro kids, is really the most challenging. They did a study recently. I'm going to write about this for The Daily Coach. They did a study, uh, the University of Pennsylvania did a study where they went through a lot of 400 NBA players' Twitter accounts. And they determined, based on the Twitter posting, if they fit into the narcissistic category. And once they determined that, then they overlaid that, was he the team captain? Was he the leader of the team? And what it proved was, 
if your leader is narcissistic and he's your best player or she's your best player, you really don't have a very good chance to win or create a team environment. And so I think that dynamic is really, you know, there was never a box to, on a report that I've ever written that checked, is this person a narcissist? Yeah. But I think it's probably really most important thing now. I'm glad you brought up character. That leads me to my next point to build off that. Just talking about just culture everywhere. Um, again, characters involved in that. And I feel like you've worked for three, just from obviously you would know, but looking at it from a 35,000 foot view, I mean, you've worked for two different, three different personalities, Hall of Fame personalities, and Bill Walsh, uh, Bill Belichick from the coaching side of things, GM side of things, and Al Davis as an owner. What are co- some of the kind of non negotiables from? Some probably were a little more riskier in their character takes than others, but what were some kind of non-negotiables for them to fit into the characters for the 49ers, for the Browns and Patriots, and for the Raiders that just you remember specifically that stick with you till this day? I think football had to be in a football, the love of football. One thing we learned was that you can change a player's work habits. You can't change his competitiveness. You know, you you can give all the testing you want and say this guy is really a hard worker. That's great. But if he's not a competitor on Saturday or Sunday, then it's really a challenge. So the, all of them, non-negotiable, you got to love football. You couldn't bring the love of football into it. You know, Walsh and Belichick were very similar in the sense that they had a standard of performance that had to be met. You know, this had to be really important. And they were willing to look away from things that may that the public may view as problematic when they didn't see it. Yeah. And they also felt like their culture could adapt and change people. Because remember, culture is something that you work on every single day. Walsh and Belichick worked on their culture every single day. And so it was ingrained in there. And so there was no debate about, you know, what was going to happen. Everybody knew the, the, the way that people had to behave within the organization. Did anything stick out to you specifically with them like that? Or how, how different were they from that standpoint? Would, would you feel like a little bit maybe like the Raiders side of things a little bit more loose from that where it was a little yeah. compared to where Coach Belichick was? Well, the Raiders thing, I think where Al got really pro- into the problems was during the 60s and 70s when the the drug culture wasn't as bad as it became in the 80s. He was able to adapt to it. You know, he was able to, to – the players could work their way through it. Now, when, mm-hmm. when the social economics of the world, the, the 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 problems we faced with drug became so severe that then, you know, Al still thought he could handle it like he did in the 60s, and that really didn't work. And then we ended up huh. getting yep. guys that really didn't love the sport, you know. Walsh and Belichick are very similar. They really rarely raised their voice. They spoke from an authoritative position. They understood the complete game. They were leaders. They knew what they needed to do to make the team better. Whatever. And they took input from the assistants, but they also knew what they what they needed to do to make the team better. It's a rare commodity to have. So, you know, I, I think from a culture standpoint, the principles that they that they both built the team on, selflessness. I mean, you know the the guy who ran the navy black the all the all blacks down in New Zealand. You know he has uh, building a team is a spiritual endeavor, right? And so when it's a spiritual challenge, and so because if you break that down, spiritual means doing something bigger than it is for yourself, and then being able to bridge people together and have a communion of of souls. 
that's a hard thing to do today. And it really takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy and it takes understanding of the people that you're dealing with and how do you motivate them? So you would agree in today's time, it is harder than ever to kind of get everybody to come to a common uh, cause kind of put, like you said, just with so maybe you didn't say social media, it's me, but for like a social media, just a lot of individualistic, um, independent contractor kind of personalities now more so than there probably was. We have it in coaching too. I mean, look, we, yeah. we really, I mean, you know, I, you know, you're much younger than I am, but I grew up in an era where there were head coaches. Now we have just play callers. Now the guy's the head coach, but he just runs the offense or he just runs the defense, you know, and then the yeah. special coach runs his unit. We don't have, you know, it's funny. The, the the United States government back during the Vietnam War, they they had an they found an airplane. They invented an airplane called the F one hundred five, and the F one hundred five could fly fast. It could fly the farthest, and it could carry heavy bombs. But the problem was it couldn't do all three things at the same time. Well, that's really the job of a head coach: is how do you make offense, defense, and the kicking game work together at the same time in perfect harmony. Well, we've removed that. We've we've basically removed that element, and we've hired guys that are not really head coaches, and we make – because they are good play callers, but they don't understand how to build a team. They don't understand how, how all three elements work together. It's a real challenge. You know, I think there's a huge void in our world is how to become a head coach. You know, one yep. of the things I think we want to try to do with the daily coaches is start a community for coaches to try to help people learn how to become a, an offensive coordinator, a defense coordinator probably more so in other sports than football because most football coaches don't think they need this training, but, but in other sports, I think it'd be really important because no one's teaching you how to be a head coach. They're teaching you the scheme, the strategy, the tactics. They're not teaching you the leadership. Why is that in your opinion? You think just like people keep like hiring these play callers that don't have never been head coaches or don't understand, like you said, bringing all three phases of the game together. It's just, listening to the media a little too much. You're too, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think because when you have a lot of people involved, it allows you to be involved. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think analytics does, I think analytics is really important in all sports, right? But when you go all in on analytics, it allows anybody who's never played to have a voice or anybody who's never gone through the whole process of building a team, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, it's easy for the analytical guys to say, well, you know, we should get an 11 personnel and run and throw the ball. Okay, great. That's good. But if we can't block the fucking left end, how the hell are we going to get – how are we going to do this, yeah. right? Like, if you've never understood that problem, it's easy, you know, but, you know, just because, you know, you know, we see it on Twitter all the time. Guys as well, you know, they they make fun of NFL head coaches, you know, the guys yeah. that understand the game and they're talking about coverages. They don't even understand the coverages. So – I think a lot of that by having more people involved, it gets people without an expertise. It really brings the Dunning Kruger effect into football, yeah. into sports, which is, you know, you think you know, but you really don't know. I mean, that's the yeah. essence of Dunning Kruger. And so, uh, because you know something in another sport, you think you know it in this. So I, I think that's why. And so owners of the NFL, they don't want to give everybody all the authority. They don't want yeah. to have one guy running their team. They want to have everybody involved with their team. When we all know that to be a great football team, you need a commander in chief. You don't need just, you don't need a committee. I say this all the time. They've never dedicated a monument in this country to a committee. No, you're right. No, they haven't. But I'm glad you brought that up. And what you just said, I'll come back to that in just a minute because it's one of my favorite things you talk about. You didn't say it exactly, but I'll bring it up here in a minute. But transitioning kind of to just the draft process, just for the people who don't know, I, I would like to hear your insights on this. Like during the draft prospect, 
draft process as a GM, high up executive, just within the organization. The media, I feel like, as you get closer to draft, the draft time, and I know the draft just passed, feels like the board's constantly moving, and you always talk about the vertical, horizontal board. What is reality on that? How often in these rooms have you sat on are actually people are moving up significantly, either horizontally or vertically in a board um, late March, early April? I don't think it's very much at all. Yeah. I don't think it's very much at all. I think the board moves quite a bit in, in February and March, and once the workouts come in and the medicals come in, I think once you think about the the, the 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 last three weeks before the draft, I don't think it moves very much. I think it moves to the outside people in the media because they don't really have a clue about, A, how to build a board and a grading system. They only talk about where the player is going to get picked. They never talk about what the player is capable of doing. And so because of that, you know, and then when they – when they're wrong on a guy, you know, this guy's moving up the ladder. Well, you just had him wrong. You know, you just had him way too low. You know, you just had this guy too low, you know. And so I, I don't think that happens as much as people suspect it does. But we're in a world where everybody has an opinion on players. You know, how many reports do people actually write on players? Mm -hmm. You know, have they ever been trained how to write a report on players? Do they understand the qualities for each team that goes into the player? See, Football is different than baseball. Baseball, you can play third base for the Mets and you can play third base for the Yankees and switch teams at, 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 in the middle of the day. Yeah. In football, you could you can't play for the Patriots and then go play for the 49ers. Two different yeah. systems of offense. Yeah. And unless you understand that, unless you really, as a scout or an evaluator, you understand Kyle's scheme, you understand Belichick's scheme, yeah. completely, it's hard to scout. You literally, you literally just brought my. That was, that was my next question. I was literally. That's something I always listen to you on the GM shuffle and you talk about. And I feel like that's something that is missing at the college level. That personnel departments in college don't understand the scheme or what their staff trying to run, and the coaches don't take the time to hey, let's get together in the off season, let's really map out our critical factors for our jack outside linebacker. In my experience, in two years, that never happens. But I always go back to like listening to you say that, and I'm like, like. And talking to some guys, obviously, in the NFL that had worked in college, like that is the biggest difference from the NFL to college from just scouting evaluation is like we do scout the scheme, which college of like nobody does, which I think is a big mistake on the college end for the most part. Most head coaches in college just let their, you know, they're, they're kind of figureheads, really. They're not yep. really in the program. And so, like, I don't want the running back coach to tell me what he wants in running backs because if he leaves two years from now, what do we do? Correct. That's, that's we're starting, yeah. We're starting over again. Like, you know, we're, Walsh would have told the running back coach what he wants. What he wanted, yeah. Belichick tells them what he wants because that's the way the program stays with some with continuity. And Correct. if you don't have a coach willing to sit in the room and say, okay, fellas, here's what I want in offensive alignment. I want this, this, and this. Here's what I want in defense alignment. And then this is – because, as I say this all the time, the FBI doesn't open the phone book and look for serial killers. Yeah, yeah. Profile. If we don't have a profile for what we're looking for, then we're really not doing a very good job. We're not going to find – you don't find talent, you eliminate talent. Yeah, process of elimination on the board, yeah, risk management. Now, transition a little bit to two more questions for you. Here you talk about this one, too, and I wanted to bring this up. You always say, I feel like the most important stat in football is first-half point differential. Why is that in your opinion? Because what happens is when you build the lead in first half, okay, you go into halftime, you have a 10-point lead. The defensive coordinator who's behind by 10 points can't make a mistake. Yeah, can't call zero blitz and get burnt. He can't. He's playing. He's playing from a desperate state, not a courageous state, a desperate state. And so the offense now can control the pace of the game. 
Mm-hmm. They can. And if you have a defense that can rush the passer, that can really attack, football's a game where you want to eliminate one element of the game. Okay, one of the things that drives me crazy is scouts that run to the nine-on-seven drill as if they're going to scout the nine-on-seven drill. Well, it's only run, right? It's only run. When you take away the pass, the players don't have to worry about playing run or pass. Football's a two-dimensional game. Mm-hmm. So when you go watch a nine-on-seven, if you're watching it to evaluate the talent, you're really making a mistake. You're watching it to evaluate toughness. Okay, I got that. Okay, is he tough enough? Will he play? But with football, the key to football is eliminating one side, eliminating something from the offense. They, If they're behind by 10, it's hard for them to establish their running game and get going. There, there's a sense of desperation. So the play sheet for the guy who's ahead is bigger. He could take more risk, and he can create a turnover and now make it a 17-point lead. Whereas yeah. the guy behind, he's got to be careful. He's got to defend running pass, Right. And so it's that, it's that kind of element of the game. And so when you play from in front, especially when you play from in front and you get the ball to start the second half with the middle eight, now the game could be, you're 17 points down, it's over. It's going to be hard to catch up. You're only going to get four or five possessions in the second half. You're trying to make up a 17-point deficit. you got to score on almost every possession. So that's why that stat is so important. And when people, people confuse the West Coast offense as if it was a – as, as it's all play design, it's a philosophy. We're going to throw the ball to get the lead. We're going to run the ball to keep the lead. And so, but we're also going to have a complementary defense that can rush the passer when we play from in front. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Great explanation there. I See, you figured it was always that, but you just break it down there. It makes complete sense. Last question, Mike, before we get out of here, I thought this would be a good one. In your entire career, and this may be, this may be hard to say, what is the proud – what is the most proud pick you've had from sitting in there where it's either you stood on the table for a guy, you felt good the whole time, whether it was your with GM and these other executive rooms we've talked about, just something that you were like, man, I'd really, if someone asked me, my last day on earth, most proud pick I've had, what I'd hang my hat on, who is it and when? You know, I, I mean, I think the, the proudest you are is when you win. You know, when you win, when you win that Super Bowl and yep. Butler makes that play and you take that kid and nobody wanted him and he makes the play to win the game. You know, I, I think to me, you know, and that was we won that game more because of the more because than just the play that Malcolm Butler won, but that ring on your finger. Yeah. I think the Jerry Rice, my first draft, the Jerry Rice to me knowing that that's the first time I was in the room and the first pick that I ever was involved with was a Hall of Famer. To me, that went on to win so many Super Bowls, to me, is the satisfying. Because football is a sport. I just talked – I wrote a column about this for the VEASAN. I mean, no no team is one player away. Yeah. You know, you know we Charles Haley was a guy that we picked that had tremendous, tremendous career and went to the Hall of Fame and – you know, and he won a lot of things for us. And I was really proud of that, having been involved with that. But there's so many other ones that you win. You know, Rob Burnett, we picked in the fifth round when I was in Cleveland. He won Super Bowls in Baltimore. You know, you're proud of that pick, even though you're not with him. Yeah. Good, man. Uh, uh, Jerry Rice, obviously, that, that that would make sense. The Malcolm Butler. Is that true of the Malcolm Butler play the day before? Was it when they were doing the walkthrough that he actually was completed? He took the wrong route. I think I saw that on the uh, yeah, no, on one did. of your articles. Brandon Browner the kid, didn't really press the receiver, didn't jam the receiver, yeah. and didn't take the right. But we practiced that play. And, you know, and Malcolm wasn't supposed to be in the field. Remember, Kyle yeah. Martin took the bench at halftime. 
Man, crazy. No little plays like that. But, Mike, I appreciate you joining us on the show, man. Again, everybody go check out the GM Shuffle. Great podcast. That's where I get a lot of my stuff off from that I use my evaluation tool. I would highly recommend it. Again, Mike, appreciate you joining us on the show. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Keep following us on Mach 10 Sports for the best information on SEC sports.